Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Linux Downtime. I'm Joe. I'm Gary. I'm Amalith. And I'm Molly. Nice to talk to you all and welcome Molly. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we should tell people a little bit about you. You are probably best known for Web3 is going just great. What is that exactly? Yeah, so that's my website that sort of keeps track of all of the examples of how Web3 is really not going just so great. I sort of was trying to get a sense of what the industry was actually accomplishing versus a lot of the sort of future casting around what Web3 might eventually become. And my sort of overwhelming feeling when I started to read about it was, you know, all of these hacks and scams and things like that. I was like, wow, Web3 is going just great. (laughs) So that's sort of where the website came from. All right, well, we definitely want to talk more about that, but uh, you are also a Wikipedia editor and you've been doing that for over 15 years, according to your website. Yeah, I think it's actually closer to 17 or something like that at this point. It's kind of forever, yeah. (laughs) So is kind of free culture and creative commons quite important to you then? Yeah, I've always really cared about especially open access and just sort of free access to information online. You know, the sort of Wikipedia ethos, I guess, has always been really important to me. And so I've always been really involved with that project and also just tried to push for following that sort of ethos in my own life. You know, like I don't paywall any of my content and I open source all the code that I can at least. And uh, yeah, so I would definitely say that's important to me. All right, that's cool. Because, yeah, like this podcast, for example, is uh, Creative Commons. And, yeah, I try not to paywall anything as well. It just, I I don't know why. It just kind of feels like not something I want to do. And I couldn't tell you why that is. It just feels inherent to me. Like, just, I guess, growing up with the internet from my late teens onwards, just everything was free and just free in both senses. Not necessarily free as in beer, but just kind of open access. And and it kind of sucks when you see... You know, people might link to an article and then it's behind a paywall and it's like, oh, well, I guess I won't be reading that then. Yeah, I I get really frustrated when I run into paywalls just like day to day. And so it just feels really wrong to paywall my own content. And I also just feel like it hasn't really been necessary. You know, I think a lot of people are willing to support journalists or writers or essayists that they enjoy, regardless of whether or not there's a barrier to them actually reading their content. Yeah. So let me just start with my position that blockchain is a solution in search for a problem, cryptocurrencies are Ponzi schemes, NFTs are straight up scams, and the whole Web3 space to me seems like either you are a grifter or a mark if you're involved with it. Is that kind of roughly where you are or is there more nuance to it than that? I mean, I would say there's probably a little bit more nuance than that. You know, I try to avoid saying that like, oh, every project's a scam because then someone's going to be like, no, look at these guys. You know, these particular guys are are doing something really benevolent. Uh, and it, you just get really sort of bogged down in that stuff where like mm. my general opinion is that a lot of projects are not necessarily intentionally scams, but they have sort of negative consequences on people that doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter what the intent is ultimately if if people are getting harmed by it far and wide. So my general opinion is that there is a lot more harm than good coming out of Web3 and just the blockchain space more broadly. One of the things I struggle with with Web3 is it seems like they're trying to lock everything down. It's like, oh, you have access to this because it's allowed via this site. And that seems to be, you know, completely the opposite of the open access and everything. And it's just like, 
why would you want to do that? I mean, like, I understand there's financial reasoning that people try to go through and do this stuff, but it just, it seems completely against the ethos of like the open web and the way the web has been since its creation kind of thing. So I don't know. It just rubs me the wrong way completely. I really dislike artificial scarcity and the idea that everything should be monetized. Some things don't need to be monetized. Some things should be open, but that seems to be, like you said, counter to everything that they're going for. Yeah, it's strange because I feel like a lot of people who are sort of in the Web3 movement, as much as you could call it one, really talk about open access and, you know, open source and and all these sort of concepts that we're familiar with. And then they sort of gate everything financially where you have to own the token to be able to participate, which it seems really contradictory to me, honestly. And really frustrating just because, you know, I think that people underestimate the extent to which owning tokens really does exclude a lot of people from being able to participate or access whatever the information is. You know, people will say, oh, it's a token. It's just a couple, you know, pennies or a dollar or something like that. And they don't realize that like that can be a lot of money for some people. And especially when you, you know, factor in transaction fees and things like that, you know, it starts to really add up, especially if people are living in, you know, the global south or something like that, and they need access to something or want access to something. And they don't have, you know, the wages that we might have in the US or in the UK or, you know, in various other places. What about the environmental aspect to it? Because that seems pretty open and shut to me that blockchains like Bitcoin just burn a ton of energy that they otherwise wouldn't need to. But then the enthusiasts, shall we say, tried to throw out ideas of hydroelectric power becoming economically viable and renewables generally being economically viable because of Bitcoin being able to kind of even out the demand. That has never really seemed logical to me. You must have heard that argument, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot of the arguments around Bitcoin's energy consumption being a good thing are pretty ludicrous to anybody who is not a Bitcoiner. But I think they stem from the fact that Bitcoiners come at it from the argument that Bitcoin is good. And so they have to sort of justify the position somehow. And so they often will sort of tie themselves in knots coming up with these arguments that, oh, you know, this enormous, useless energy demand is actually good for the grid or something like that. I don't think any of them are really compelling. It's just sort of a a way to try to move the goalposts a little bit when it comes to the fact that Bitcoin burns just an enormous amount of electricity. I like to point out now that not all blockchains do that, I guess. Um, And there, there are some that are not as disastrous as Bitcoin, but you really can't overlook the energy consumption and the, the waste of Bitcoin. Well, yeah, Ethereum, for example, switched recently after a long time debating it and, you know, going back and forth on it to proof of stake, right, rather than proof of work. Is that really an improvement? In terms of the environmental cost, it is. Um, you know, the the change there is pretty immense as far as how much electricity it was using. It was very similar to Bitcoin, and now it's, you know, marginal on the scale of other types of web services, I would say. Mm. But there are trade-offs that are made when you switch from something like proof-of-work to proof-of-stake, which is partly why Bitcoiners are so opposed to the idea of doing so with Bitcoin. They worry about security issues and centralization issues and and things like that that can be made worse by proof-of-stake. 
And one of the things they purport is that blockchains and cryptocurrencies as a whole promote democratization of finance, but proof of stake just completely goes around that. You can't get in unless you have something to stake, and some people don't. Yeah, I mean, you can't become a validator without having something to stake is is very accurate. Although I would argue that proof of work is similarly difficult to become involved in because, you know, it used to be you could mine some Bitcoin on a laptop in your basement. And now you have to have ASICs and, you know, the various specialized hardware and access to electricity and things like that. So there are similar barriers in place there, too. And what about this idea that you've got Bitcoin, which is legitimate, and then all the other shit coins, which are not? Do you draw any distinction there? Yeah, that's kind of a Bitcoin maximalist perspective (laughs) where Bitcoin is the one true coin and everything else is just a cheap knockoff, pretty much. I mean, Bitcoin is unique in some ways, mostly in sort of social ways, I think, where it has this mystique because it was the first and Mm. people really love it for that reason. But, you know, there are tons of other cryptocurrencies that are exactly the same as Bitcoin in sort of the code way. You know, they're just forks of Bitcoin. And those are really no different other than adoption and sort of this social value that's been ascribed to Bitcoin. But, you know, there are things that make different cryptocurrencies unique from one another. For example, you know, Ethereum has a very robust smart contract ecosystem where you can build all this software on the blockchain, whereas Bitcoin doesn't have quite that to the same extent, at least. And what about the Lightning Network then? Yeah, Lightning is the the solution (laughs) to all of Bitcoin's problems, I hear. Yeah. Lightning has its own issues. So, you know, Lightning is, I guess, for people who are not terribly familiar, it's a way that people hope to circumvent some of the issues around transaction speeds with Bitcoin. So, you know, there's only so many transactions that the Bitcoin network can handle. Lightning is a way to make transactions much faster than if you just did a normal Bitcoin transaction. But it also introduces a lot of centralization that you wouldn't necessarily have with just the base Bitcoin network. And there are a lot of issues around how it could scale, too, because, you know, it sort of relies on solving what is an unsolved problem in computer science in order to sort of compute the optimal paths to perform a transaction. And so as a lightning network grows, there are issues as far as actually completing transactions that are going to become more and more prevalent, I think. And I mean, I could go on. There's kind of a long list of issues with the network that people sort of like to just gloss over. Well, please do, because uh, I've heard from Bitcoin maximalists that Lightning is the solution to almost all of the problems that people throw at Bitcoin. I think it suffers from the same problems that a lot of these solutions have. You know, you can kind of generalize a lot of the problems with the Lightning Network to problems that we see in like the Ethereum ecosystem with all of these layer twos that are coming out. And it's the same sort of thing where they've identified issues with the core, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum technology. And so they're applying this second layer of technology to the problem to try to sort of band-aid those problems that they've identified, but there's no solution to the actual problems, really. So they're just sort of adding all of this kludge to it to try to fix things that are kind of inherent to the network, you know, around transaction speed, transaction cost, network congestion, things like that. 
And you see the same things happening in the Ethereum world as our concerns with Lightning. You know, there's enormous centralization happening in these L2s. Some of them have security issues that are not necessarily, you know, existent on the Ethereum chain and things like that. So I think you just end up with problems when you're sort of starting with a technology that is flawed and you are sort of just building on top of a flawed technology, just adding layer after layer. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Servermania. Go to servermania.com slash LDT to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. Servermania has over two decades of experience building high-performance infrastructure hosting platforms for businesses globally. They offer a wide range of fully customizable dedicated cloud, co-location, and IP transit services and free initial consultations. Servermania offers a 100% uptime SLA with some of the best bandwidth pricing in North America on network speeds of up to 20 gigabits per second in nine locations worldwide. With Servermania, every customer receives a dedicated account manager, free 24-7 live chat and support, with one of the quickest response times in the industry. So go to servermania.com slash LDT to find out why my friend Alan Jude has been a Servermania customer for over five years. Use the promo code LinuxDowntime to get 15% off dedicated servers recurring for life. That's servermania.com slash LDT and promo code LinuxDowntime. Where did it all go wrong? That's what I want to know. <laughs> did it just go wrong from the beginning? And was I just too dumb to see it? Because I wasn't like super into it, but I did mine a few Dogecoin early on and a bit of Litecoin and traded that for Bitcoin. And I've got like a tiny fraction of a Bitcoin somewhere backed up. Not that I have any interest in doing anything with it. But it was really NFTs that opened my eyes to it. And this was kind of around 2020-ish. It was, you know, lockdown. Everything was going a bit strange generally in the world. And NFTs came along. And that was like just a freight train that hit me. Like, whoa, this this whole thing is just bullshit. Because NFTs, right, yeah, let me just get this straight. Are NFTs just a straight-up scam slash money laundering, or is there more nuance to it than that? <laughs> well, it depends very much who you ask, but I don't see a whole lot of legitimate potential for NFTs besides just pure speculation, which was kind of the majority of the activity that we saw. Uh, I guess money laundering is a use case. I can give them that, so, you know, you can use them for something. Yeah, but, you know, that was the point for me that really woke me up. And I think it woke a lot of people up, especially in the open source community, because that's the, the kind of problem here, that all of this stuff is open source. It's all decentralized. It all checks a lot of good boxes in theory, but there's just that inherent problem or a set of inherent problems with it. And I think that's why it was given a pass for so long, at least by me. And I feel really dumb for not seeing it before NFTs came along and opened my eyes, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think Bitcoin in particular started out with some ideology that is pretty appealing to people who are in the open source community or who care about privacy or, you know, sort of it has very good stated goals around, you know, allowing people to transact privately. You know, financial privacy is not really a thing in, you know, the US or in basically any financial system at this stage. So it claimed to try to introduce that. But I think it fell victim to the sort of economic forces that were inevitable, which is that if you have this highly speculative asset, especially one that is not well regulated in any sense, 
people will use it for fraud and scams and, you know, they will try to pump the price of it at any cost in order to make a profit. And that's what we've seen basically ever since. You know, there were early days of Bitcoin where people were using it for, you know, buying pizzas and things like that, fairly innocuous stuff. And that has all sort of gone by the wayside where these days the primary purpose of cryptocurrency is the naked speculation and, you know, the fraud and and that type of theft that is really prevalent in the ecosystem. And I don't think, you know, despite the very pure ideology that it started with, I think it was somewhat inevitable that it would turn into this just by way it was designed. You know, there there wasn't really a way for it to become a currency in any real sense of the term and any way for it to be used for, you know, the types of activities that people, I think, envisioned early on. That reminds me of a, a lot of the earlier projects that started off, stuff like uh, DevCoin, which was supposed to, you know, go through and get pay open source developers via your cryptocurrency, all that kind of stuff. But then there's Namecoin, which I think is also dead now. And now there's Filecoin, which is, I think somehow is tied to IPFS or something. I don't remember. Trying to keep track of this stuff is not fun <laughs> or not easy, I should say. But it's like, you know, we're, you're talking about how was it wrong from the start? And it, it it seems like everyone was like, all right, there's a bunch of ways that we can try to make this work. But like none of them have succeeded, right? And like you were saying, like Bitcoin has pretty much succeeded mostly because it's a social thing and it's become speculative. And I, I think that's really strikes at the heart of the matter there. That's just like, yeah, it's just a security now that people are going to speculate on. Like regardless of what type of cryptocurrency it is, that's just inevitably what it's going to become now. Because a bunch of people have tried to do good things with it and none of them have succeeded, at least as far as I'm aware. Yeah, I mean, there have been a bunch of projects that aim to use cryptocurrency to fund some ostensibly good thing. You know, you named a couple. There's there's Gitcoin and other things like that as well. But there's a challenge when it comes to using crypto for that, which is that unless the goal of the project is just purely financial, then you end up with these competing incentives where on the one hand, you want to do whatever it is that your project is trying to do, you know, pay developers who are writing open source software or incentivize file storage or whatever it might be. But then you have this other incentive, which is get as rich as you can from these tokens, you know, hoard them, drive up the price, whatever it is you need to do. And those two things are often, I think, at odds with one another, where, you know, people will sacrifice the goal in order to pursue the financial aspect of it. And a lot of the projects that I've seen in the Web3 ecosystem tend to sort of fall apart at some stage when those two things become just completely untenable in terms of them competing with each other. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, too. So, like, I've gotten crypto donations for my open source work. But like, I will hold that stuff until the price is really high or I really need to cash it out. So, you know, ultimately, like you're saying, the motivations are, how do I get as much as I can out of this cryptocurrency, even from somebody that's actually receiving a donation? And I I think that drives home more to the point that like, from the start, this is all just a vehicle to try to make money. I actually had the opposite approach. I used to have a few coin wallets listed on my website, and I received some sizable donations. But my strategy was not to hold them and hope that they might eventually become worth more. I cashed out immediately. So I, whatever the donor intended me to receive, that's what I got. So that's very fair. 
full disclosure, I actually worked as a DevOps on a Bitcoin exchange for about a year and a half. So like I've seen the swings, like I've seen them firsthand. So it's like, all right, I see what it's at right now. But if I wait, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's that whole just seeing it and being in it full time for a while. Maybe it's just the ecosystem in general, right? But it really makes you try to like, get the most value out of it. Right. It's me from the future cutting in here. We're going to wrap this up for now, but there's going to be a part two of this. What happened was we ended up talking to Molly for way longer than we'd planned to. And rather than trying to cut it down to the length of one episode, I thought we may as well just do it as two. So stay subscribed to this feed because in two weeks, you'll get part two of the episode where we talked about all sorts, central bank, digital currencies, AI, and loads more. A quick thank you to the people who support us with PayPal and Patreon. You can go to linuxdowntime.com slash support for details. And for $5 a month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of just this show. Or for $10, you can get the whole late-night Linux family of shows ad-free. And sometimes early as well, which I think will happen with part two of this chat with Molly. Once it's finished, I'll make sure it's up earlier than normal for the patrons. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Molly, mollywhite.net is her website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, as well as her Mastodon, where she's pretty active. Also, just a quick note to say that Amalith will be at Self, Southeast Linux Fest, which is June 9th to 11th in Charlotte, North Carolina. So if you're going along to that, do uh, say hello to him. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxdowntime.com. So until part two in two weeks, see you later. <laughs>